0: Hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm. What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time. And I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Welcome to part two of Boning Up on Bone Health. Part one included need-to-know information about bone health, Why you should care about bone health, risk factors for osteoporosis, and screening recommendations. In this episode, I'm welcoming back Dr. Tufte Sapri to talk about prevention and treatment of both osteopenia and osteoporosis. This episode builds on the information in part one, so if you haven't already done so. You may want to take a listen before diving into this episode. Welcome back, Dr. Sapri. Hi, Dr. Stryker. Let's talk about prevention from someone who either does not have known osteoporosis or who's been diagnosed with low bone mass, who is not at risk for fracture, but wants to prevent further loss. And we're going to divide this into um, things that people can do in terms of exercise, things people can do as far as their diet, things people can do as far as supplements, and things preventative drugs that people might take. And then we're going to get into the whole treatment thing for people who've been diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So we're going to save that for later. But let's just start with prevention of progression of bone loss and exercise. Let's start with exercise. What kind of exercise is the good exercise when it comes to bone health?
1: Right. So I think, right. So it's understand, it's important to understand, right, the numbers, where your risk of fracture is. Um, always, I always do a falls assessment. Cause again, women have osteopenia can be 50 or can they, they can be 80. And as I mentioned, age is a risk factor for both low bone density and falls. And so if you're high risk for falls, you're high risk for fractures. So again, I always look at the age. So exercise is also tailored by, you know, age. Um, and in, you know, what patients and what women come to me being able to do, um, because I'm not going to tell, you know, an an 80 year old who, you know, has, um, you know, walked her dog that she needs to go, you know, lift some weights. I mean, that's not going to help, right? So we really have to tailor, tailor that. So. And and this is always, this is something that is, um, you know, sort of, I really believe in this area really understudied. Um, There's a lot of small studies on exercise. And I've tried to always, for my patients trying to make sure that I've looked at all the literature and and given them the examples of the resistance exercises um, or the weight bearing exercises that have been studied and that have, uh, you know, shown some benefit. And so I usually break it down into three things. Number one, you know we want to be doing aerobic exercise so exer- but that's exercise that's good for everything right it's good for your bones it's good for your brain it's good for your heart it's you know etc et so we don't need to complicate that and really you know most of the medical societies say 150 minutes of moderate aerobic exercise weekly right okay, so that's so, about okay swimming minutes.
0: let's let's talk swimming swimming is aerobic exercise is
1: swimming going to do anything for your bones right but the, i say no so swimming is, <laughs> is going to be an okay exercise but I always tell my patients to, do you live in a pool? Do you live on your Peloton bike? I, I hope not. Um, so, you know, swimming, biking, all these things, we haven't, you know, we have, we don't have good, qu- high quality studies on, on whether these impact the bone. You know, we do know that, again, they're good aerobic exercise. We do know that long distance cyclists, you know, have, lo- you know, lost some bone density. That's all they do. So cross training is what's important. And again, this, this goes back to, meeting my patients of what they're doing. You know, my patient said, I see a trainer two times a week. I exercise all the time, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, you're do you're there's no tweaks I need to make. It's the patient who says, Oh, I just walk for exercise or I walk my dog or I do Pilates twice a week. Right. These are the things we need to sort of think about it in three buckets. So weight bearing exercise, including, which is again, walking, running, Exercise classes, tennis, I mean, you know, pickleball, all these things are sort of, you know, again, aerobic exercise with side to side motion. You're using your own body weight. Then we think about resistance exercise. That can be bands. That can be weights. Again, most people don't feel confident if they've not been doing that to just go out and do that. So I distill some of the literature talking about different exercises you can do, including lunges, side to side jumps. Things that have been actually studied um, in, in moderately rigorous studies to show that they affect the bone density. And the third thing is balance, right? So it's shocking to me um, how many women cannot balance on, 20 for, on one leg for 20 seconds, even in, you know in their 40s, 50s, 60s. So that's a very simple, you know, diagnostic tool to be able to balance. Um, you know, in 20, for 20 seconds, or if that's too easy to be able what to touch the ground study? and come back
0: up. There, there was that study that if you can't balance on one leg for, for 20 seconds, that there's your, I forgot the percentage likelihood of dying within the next three years. Did you hear about that? Wow. One? I've not heard that, but yeah, it's I did pretty, that one on pretty the pretty news a few months ago and I should remember the statistic. But all I remember is that I did that on the news. And then that night I was out to dinner with a group of friends and we all decided in the restaurant to stand up and balance on one leg to see if we were going to live for the next three years. And the problem is that we'd been drinking a fair amount and the
1: women were all wearing heels.
0: It didn't go right. so
1: well. <laughs> Right. I mean, my, some of my patients surprise me when they're healed. But I always say, but again, that's meeting. So some people were, you know, more surprised that they can't do that. And then, but, but, but is why is it important? Is it because they're
0: more likely to fall in fracture? Right. Or is because the lack of balance is an indication of bone loss?
1: It's an indication of balance. And so balance or are, are, are higher risk for falls and particularly it becomes more important when we're thinking about, you know, older adults or, or women who are frail or, you know, there's some, there's a lot of medical literature on the timed up and go, which is like the tug test, which is basically standing up, uh, walking a few meters, turning around and walking back and doing that within uh, 20 seconds. Um, uh, again, being able to do that raising out of your chair without pushing down. So this is, again, you know, we see a wide variety of patients. You know, I want if I want to prevent a hip fracture, my 80-year-old nice I thought her balance for 20 seconds, she can't balance for two seconds. So we have to work on, you know, right. home physical therapy, timed up and go, extensor exercises, versus someone who's 50 to 55 and who wants to be very aggressive with their bone loss and they don't understand, you know, why they're losing bone density. Well, then we really hone and talk about resistance exercise, balance, very rarely I recommend a weighted vest. Um, you know, things like of, of yeah. this nature.
0: But you know, the other thing I, people are pretty much told, I'm, I'm hoping told pretty often about balance and how important that is in terms of their, their risk of tripping and falling. But the thing that they're not told about that's even more important is incontinence. We know that women, particularly who are trying Mm -hmm. to make it to the bathroom in the middle of the night, not only are they walking quickly and they might be dark and disoriented, but then they lose urine on the way. They slip and fall in the urine. And when the paramedics come to see why they fractured their hip, they're too humiliated to say, well, it's because I peed on the floor and I slipped. And I think that that's something we need to get out there and talk about a lot more because incontinence Mm -hmm. is treatable. And I actually am doing an upcoming Mm -hmm. podcast um, that's going to be solely devoted to that. So we're not going to get into it right now. But the point is, is that incontinence is a treatable condition. Diapers are not the treatment for incontinence. And, um, and it has an impact on so many things, including the risk of fracture. It is just as important as balance.
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, at, at different stages of life, but I see a lot of women I ask. So, you know, getting to the bathroom, how many times, and if, if you ask the, just like, you know, in women's health, no one's asking these questions. Thankfully we are, or if you're not, find someone who does ask you these questions. Because when you ask the question, how many times do you have to in the middle of the night? I am always shocked. It's you know, four to five, eight to nine. And again, I said, well, do you have your walker by your bed? No, I usually just use the wall and I can get there. (laughs) Um, And it's really, and I really, and I say, okay, well, let's try and fix the incontinence, right? And this is where menopause and midlife wouldn't help. There's a lot of, you know, intersection, but that is absolutely very, very important because it is, you know, incontinence issues or tripping on a dog or loose rugs and carpets. So we can do a fall risk assessment. And I heavily lean on, you know, some public, uh, some uh, physical therapists. That can be, you know, trained in understanding. You know what exercises are, uh, you know, can be helpful for this patient. How can we meet them where they are? If pa- I, have, I see a lot of patients who sustain, sadly, you know, vertebral fractures, and they still want to be very active, or they sustain their fracture. They need really to rehabilitate that, you know, fracture and get back to where they want to be. They want to work on their balance because they've realized I'm, I'm not do- I can't do this alone. I tell them no. you and practice your to balance.
0: Physical your balance. There, there's well. actually. Um, you know, there are, there are coaches. There are people who, even at the gym, very often they'll have special classes for exercises for bone health. So I think that there, there's a lot of different resources that people can find if they look real quick. What about yoga? Cause a lot of people ask about yoga and bone health.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So again, that's working on resistance exercises because it's using your balance, right? Or it's using your own body. Tree pose. Tree pose is very important, I've been told. Right. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and there are some, there is some literature on, you know, on yoga um, and and balance and and strength training and things. And, but you want to be doing that safely, particularly if you have a very low spine bone density, we talk about avoiding for over forward flexion, um, avoiding, you know, sort of, you know, doing any standing on your head, again, maybe for more of the advanced yoga provider. Nobody needs to stand
0: out. on their head anymore after they're 60 years old. I'm just saying, come
1: on. <laughs> There's a time <laughs> to do th- some vertigo. <laughs> but yeah. The Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation has a lovely flyer. Even if you, if you go into their website, and you Google like safe yoga, safe Pilates. We'll put, the link in the, um, we'll put the link in the program. Yeah, that is, you know, really helpful. And then finding someone who's certified. And, it, and so that you can do these things. I mean, I learned so much from my own patients. PBS has something like classical stretch. I've learned so many vid- different, um, you know, particularly during the COVID pandemic, and and a lot of people went to the, you know, to YouTube. So there's so many great resources out there, and I love just them and hearing them for for my patients. So that's really the exercise in a, in a nutshell is you know do a diverse amount of things, really focus on the strength training, and the balance, you know, and that really will pay off.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's move on away from exercise, because I think we've beaten that to death, um, and talk about supplements. And let's start with calcium. What do you have to say yeah. about calcium? Oh, my
1: gosh. It's, how long do you have? <laughs> um, well, let's do this in just a couple of minutes, because <laughs> we have so much more to cover. <laughs> I know you could talk about um, calcium for I Oh, calcium. Okay, I know. It's so crazy. I know. So, so so calcium so calcium when we think about it everyone thinks about calcium supplements but i always like to say well supplement really the you know the definition of supplement is adds to right so it's not that when we think about calcium everyone thinks oh i need to go to whole foods and you know buy the latest calcium supplement or what's the best one But the reality is calcium, you know, is, is a very key component to bone mineralization, as I mentioned earlier. So, you know, getting adequate calcium can be from dairy sources, like again, milk, cheese, yogurt. And we've done some writing on that before. You don't need to drink a gallon of milk every day. But then there's so many non-dairy sources. Every time I turn around the grocery store, there's new non-dairy milk. I mean, and I always look, you know, up cashew milk and oat milk and almond milk and soy milk and all these now are fortified with calcium. Most of the time, one cup of any... Back up one second. You say they're fortified. Are all of them fortified or do you need to check? No, you need to check. But the reality is now most of these nut-based milks or alternative milks are fortified. Now, I have patients who sometimes make their own. Those are not going to be fortified. Okay, but but when
0: we when you talk about milk and dairy products and all of that, I mean, that's food, That's diet, which is obviously important. Right. But that's different, as you mentioned just a minute ago, than supplementation. So mm-hmm. let's back up a little bit and say, okay, how much in a perfect world should a post-menopause woman get in her diet when it comes to calcium?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so generally, the RDA um, or what's recommended is around 1200 milligrams of calcium in diet and/or supplement. So, 1200 milligrams of elemental calcium. So, that can be again dietary sources. Um, that can be nutritional sources. That can be supplemental sources. Um, and then for other women who you know might have malabsorption issues, I see a fair amount of women who have undergone gastric bypass um, who have low absorption. We, they need even more calcium. And in and, and some of those vitamins that they take are, uh, are even higher calcium, you know, rich foods, or they need to take more of those uh, during the day. Um, so and generally It's important for milligrams. women to know because of
0: the thing that we hear so often is, well, I can't get calcium in my diet because I'm lactose intolerant or I don't mm-hmm. like milk and I don't like dairy. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of milk, you know, different kinds of milk, soy, etc. But there's right. also a lot of foods, you know, leafy right. greens and salmon, canned Remember. salmon. And there's a whole list of, anyone could, you know, Google that as well. And we could also uh, put that in the link, but there's a lot of mm-hmm. food that has calcium that has nothing to do with, with dairy. um right. so When we talk and about then, mm-hmm. supplemental calcium, and and I know you could go on like this for a long time, but um, in, in general, in general, there's so many different types of supplemental calcium. Mm-hmm. Um, is there one type that is at the top of the list that someone should take if they're going to take a supplement?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, there are, there, the calcium comes with a lot, you know, what's connected to it, right? What is it? Well, what is it going to be metabolized with? So um, calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, there's calcium phosphate. Um, you know, there's so many different, uh, you know, sort of additives to calcium and then some have vitamin D or phosphorus or, uh, you know, etc. associated, but generally pretty well tolerated for most of my patients is calcium citrate. Um, and that comes in various, you know, brand names and different do- doses from 200 milligrams and the smaller ones to, you know, up to 600. I always tell people, look at the, you know, if you are going to take a calcium supplement, look at the serving size. Cause some people think, Oh, I get enough calcium. And then they look, they take one, but the serving size says take three or they'll take it in divided doses or, um, you know, and, and things. So generally calcium citrate. And this is what you know, focus on a lot. Some people can't swallow pills. Some people need it in liquid form, powder form drop form um you know with or without vitamin d um you know sometimes it comes with magnesium really to help with the absorption and prevent constipation so there's so many different types um so i kind of again see what people are doing in their diet what they're doing in uh, you know how much they could tolerate you know if they're taking a multivitamin, which has calcium, you know, there's some surprising sorts of calcium and airborne and things like that. When you look up, you know, other supplements have calcium sometimes. So trying to see, take a total inventory of what you're taking and then decide where you need to add in. Calcium in the heart. Mm-hmm. Also, a long conversation.
0: Yeah. So, you know, that's actually something that comes up all the time Mm -hmm. when I say to a woman, Are you taking supplemental calcium? And the first thing she'll say is, No, my intern has told me not to because of my heart.
1: Right. Right. So, a couple of years ago now, you know, there was a study in the British Medical Journal that showed that there was an increased risk of coronary calcification in women who took high doses of calcium. Sadly, it was also not statistically significant, but for some reason, this study got, you know, huge buzz um and 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 the reality is and then we have you know so many other studies on the other side showing you know at, you know calcium where it's just supplemented a, a otherwise less than 600 milligrams of calcium um from supplements a day shows no cardiac cardiac risk or no calcification risk we are doing a lot of these calcium scores and things like that now so i think this is on people's mind, but it's not necessarily associated. Mm-hmm. And so the the problem is this has gotten a lot of press without a lot of understanding, similar to hormone therapy use actually in, in women as well. So I think again, Thinking about just supplementing and adding, looking at the total inventory of calcium, but the, with, with physiologic levels of calcium, you are not going to, you know, cause breast calcifications. Mm-hmm. You are not going to cause coronary artery calcifications. Um, people say, well, I can't eat yolk cheese because that's saturated fat. And again, harder cheeses have less saturated fat. There's so many different types of yogurt thou that is plain and non-fat. You, you don't need to get high saturated fats from calcium. I think that also is sometimes a, a misunderstanding.
0: A few months ago on the news I reported an article about prunes and that if you eat six prunes a day, Mm -hmm. that you will actually get a greater increase in your bone mass than if you take calcium and vitamin D. And I was surprised by that. And it's not because prunes has calcium or vitamin D, it was something else in the prunes. Do you what what are your thoughts on that study?
1: Yeah, I, and I also thought I also thought anything. I think I printed it out for a patient who was taking six prunes and had osteoporosis um but um but again, I think that the thinking is like like fermented foods or fermented you know products maybe helping the bone density and maybe it's um also stimulating some of like the osteocalcin, which is a bone forming cell. Again, this is small. I think the study was like, you know, 300 or less patients. So a small, you know, pretty small, you know, observational study. I mean, you're going to find these small studies when you look at, um, you know, things like um, uh, what's the, the one that always comes up, the, the different types of calcium supplements that are natural calcium supplements, or they say, oh, this is, um, oh, sorry, like calcium with algae in it, you know, oh, this is better than the other ones. I mean, these are all just again. This is meta- okay, but for the woman formed, who
0: yeah. who has concerns about her bones and is also really constipated, prunes aren't a bad thing. <laughs> it could be a good thing right. for her, right? Right.
1: Or, right, or finding a calcium with magnesium in it, or adding a lot of magnesium, and there's a lot of, or adding a probiotic because yeah. there is there is that is one of the common complaints about calcium. I just can't take it; it's constipated. Yeah. So we we figure out other ways. And so the reality is. And and like I said, there's some calcium and multivitamins. Multivitamins generally have calcium carbonate because it's just cheaper to manufacture. And that can sometimes be the culprit of constipation. So we switch from one to the other. Um thinking you have about to play calcium. Thinking about, thinking about protein. Again, calcium a lot of calcium rich foods also have a good amount of protein. So for my women in their 70s and 80s who are, you know, thin, we're talking about muscle loss, bone loss, getting these foods in are actually better, thinking about boost or gain. All the and sure, some of these have also a great amount of calcium and then tums you know has some calcium so there's a lot of ways you can get it without you know without changing so much in what's going on in your in your diet and lifestyle.
0: And let's not spend too long on it, but I do just want to mention vitamin D. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the questions that we get so often is what is the level of vitamin D that you're aiming for? Because we know vitamin D mm-hmm. tends to be low, not just in areas that have no sun. But in people who are um, older and overweight, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. risk factors for low vitamin D. But so what is the mm-hmm. level that we're shooting for when you get your blood yeah. work done?
1: Right. So most you know most of the medical societies you know define deficient vitamin D, and we're talking about tw- uh, med- something that's measured in the blood work, which is called the 25 hydroxy vitamin D very easily readily available test. But surprisingly, a lot of people don't get that done. Um, and particularly in like the northern latitudes where we live. So uh, deficiency is, is defined, depending, on, again, on the medical society, of less than 20 nanograms per milliliter and sometimes or less than 30 nanograms per milliliter. Um, so generally, I use the cutoff of 30 nanograms per milliliter as, as a deficiency, and then that should be treated. The goal of, of, of vitamin D is to help. Vitamin D is to help uh, absorb calcium and also decrease something called, we call the PTH or parathyroid hormone, which basically steals calcium out of the out of the bone. So, uh, the, generally, a 25-hydroxy vitamin D between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter is where we sort of aim for. Some people are a little bit higher than that. I don't like to for people to be too much lower. But what we have learned, and this is something that is updated, is there was, you know, a very large study recently called the VITAL trial, which looked at omega-3 supplementation and vitamin D of 2,000 international units of vitamin D. This was given not just in osteoporosis or p- women, this was given in just like all community d- dwelling individuals. And what we found was um, omega-3s and vitamin D of 2,000 every single day did not decrease the risk of, you know, fractures or, you know, falls. And and we know that, right? That's not surprising because vitamin D alone, just like calcium alone, isn't going to, you know, prevent falls or decrease osteoporosis risk. It really needs to be thought about as a sort of a package deal, right? The calcium, vitamin D exercise, you know, lifestyle, you know, treatment, et cetera. So when people say, I've got so many messages in my inbox saying, I saw this vital trial, i mean, taking 2,000 of vitamin D. I'm just gonna throw it out now, you know, like no, no reason for it. Well, the reality is, again, that study looked at all comers and didn't look at women who or women, people who are at higher risk for low bone density and low bone mass. But 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 is not the same for everyone. So again, it needs to be tailored based on what the 25 hydroxy vitamin D is, what your risk factors for bone loss, how can we help maximize the absorption of calcium. And like you said, where do you live? (laughs) Where do you live?
0: Exactly. Sunscreen is good for your skin, but uh, also is going to get in the way of your vitamin D absorption. So there's that. Let's talk about drugs um, and medications and hormone therapy. And I'd like to divide this into women who have low bone mass and what they might choose to do to prevent further bone loss. And then we'll talk about drugs that are used for osteoporosis, because While there's some crossover, it really is two different situations. So let's talk about the woman who comes in, say she's 55, 60 years old, she has low bone mass, and she says to you, okay, what can I do? I'm already doing my weight-bearing exercise, I'm doing my calcium, I'm doing my vitamin D, I've stopped drinking all my soda. Um, <laughs> what, you know, what can I do? I'm really worried. I have a big family history. My mother died of a hip fracture. I want to do everything I can to prevent mm-hmm. further bone loss. What do you tell that woman?
1: The first thing I, the first thing I would tell, the first thing I would do is I would assess, um, for, um, you know, any, re, re, you know, any fractures, no, obviously, but then I would look at the T score numbers, the bone density numbers, all the things you just said, and if they have, if this woman has no contraindications, which are very few, uh, to hormone therapy, um, which is, you know, estrogen plus progesterone therapy, um, that is what I would give her, um, because we really know from, you know, you, you know, since, since, you know, since the 1940s, um, you know, that hormones, particularly, you know, estrogen replacement reduces the risk of fracture, prevents height loss. Um, and we know from the women's health initiative study, which always gets so much press that really those women were who took estrogen plus progesterone for five to seven years yeah. decreased their risk of a hip yeah. fracture by 30 to 40%. And I
0: I think we can't emphasize this enough because I know I sound like a broken record, but in almost every single one of my podcasts, when I go on and on and on about hormone therapy is not just some kind of like optional, oh, it will help you sleep and help your hot flashes, which of course it will, but it is not only going to impact your quality of life, it's going to impact your length of life in terms of cardiovascular disease and other significant medical problems. And bone health is at the top of that list. So a woman might come in, of course, with her primary complaint being Hot flashes, but I know after spending ten minutes with you, you then convince mm-hmm. her that not only should she be taking hormone therapy for her hot flashes, but it's also going to prevent bone loss down the road. Um, testosterone, right. do you and- ever? Because we, I know we both, you know, we both do sexual medicine and menopause, mm-hmm. and I know that we both sometimes supplement someone with testosterone to help their libido, mm-hmm. which is a. Topic I did on another podcast, say yes to testosterone. But for a woman who is, it's just about her bone mass. Do you ever um, prescribe supplemental testosterone if she has very low testosterone post menopause?
1: Yeah, so again, the evidence on testosterone is still, I feel like, in its infancy for women. So, you know, there is some research that's going on looking at testosterone and actually at older individuals, older women, um, and seeing if it reduces the risk of falls. Again, for thinking that it might help with like muscle mass, muscle memory, um, you know, particularly for women who we see who have maybe had early surgical menopause or premature ovarian insufficiency where we know, you know, their ovaries are not producing not only estrogen, but are also producing testosterone and they have, uh, you know, other complaints like brain fog or muscle, you know, loss. But the reality is there's really no, you know, there's no quality studies. There's no recommendation to use testosterone replacement uh, for bone mineral density because, again, what we're using when we use, you know, testosterone, we're using, you know, one-tenth of the male doses. We're using very low doses, which we know which can help with, you know, what we use it for is just female sexual dysfunction or low libido um, and low desire. So, the reality is I would use it as sort of like a package deal. Right. Uh, if someone, if you, you're also treating it, low libido,
0: yeah. you can say, right. and bonus, this will help your bones right. as well, but you're not going to do it exclusively for that. Well, that's that's always been not. my approach, but yeah. you and I've always kind right. of had similar approaches on all of that. Yeah. Let's talk about Reloxifen. Explain what mm-hmm. Reloxifen is and when you would prescribe it.
1: So, so the other, so right. So we like to talk about hormone therapy if there's no contraindications, and then we have options, thankfully, in in menopause care, which is so, which is so good. So. So, raloxifene, which is a sort of a unique class of medicines called a selective estrogen receptor modulator, we used to call it something called a therm, and now we call it something called an estrogen agonist antagonist, which is a fancy term for what it does. And so, what it does is at the bone, which is, you know, we're, if we're thinking about counseling for that, it actually sort of works to prevent, uh, sorry, to stimulate the estrogen-like effect that uh on the bone so that bone forming that prevention of a uh, bone uh, resorption which the osteoclast does so it sort of again preferentially uh, goes toward that estrogen receptor or kind of stimulates that um it's a um, it's a, you know, it's an effective medicine for women, like we said, who are lower risk for fracture. So they've not had a hip fracture. They're not, they don't have a very low T score in the hip area. Maybe they have a lower bone density in their spine or a lower T score in their spine um, because we know that this medicine as its effect on estrogen is going to help improve the bone density of the spine more. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of times there are women, we think about this, are women who've potentially been on tamoxifen or women who have a family history, a family history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Because we know this medicine's been studied for up to eight years and it reduces the risk of estrogen receptor uh, positive breast cancer. So yeah. many of these women are sort of getting their am- mammograms or their MRIs or they're trying, they know their, their Gale risk model score, or their tyrer sex score, but no one has talked to them about the fact that they have low bone density, either osteopenia or osteoporosis, and they're between 50 and 70. And you know they have a family history of breast cancer, and this medicine's like again is like a, you know is is a clear you know a clear winner for them. Well, well, you know, and I just just
0: to be clear, when we talk about selective estrogen receptor modulators, these SERMs, what we know, as you said, is they can either block estrogen receptors or they can stimulate estrogen receptors. And relaxin, the trade name is Avista. Some people may know it by that name. But the thing that's unique about Avista is that it's actually a cousin to tamoxifen. It's the same class of drugs. And like tamoxifen, it actually blocks estrogen receptors in the breast, but it stimulates estrogen receptors in the bone. And when you think about how that is going to help so many women because there are women who come to see you who specifically are concerned about their bone health and not even maybe thinking about their breasts. But when you say to them, hey, there's this drug that is not only going to help your bones, but it's also going to decrease your risk of breast cancer. And then the flip side, of course, the women that you mentioned who are very high risk for breast cancer, and they've been told to take raloxifen for that reason, but no one ever told them how much it was going to help their bones. So we've mm-hmm. talked so many times about this is one of the most under prescribed medications out there. We don't work for this company. We don't make any money when this or any medication is prescribed. But I think this is one that really women need to know more about and talk to their doctors about because for it to both decrease breast cancer and decrease osteoporosis, that's huge. That's really right. huge. And it
1: also does not stimulate the. The uterus or the ovaries, you know, we're not concerned with, with any of that. But um, sometimes the tamoxifen uh, side effects do, and the the only side effect that I potentially see is some people get hot flashes, um, just like hormone therapy. If you've had a blood clot or you're very high risk for a blood clot, we can't use this medicine. And so, just in my prescribing, I sometimes start using it, and I tell women to take it every other day for the first month or two, and then can and then continue taking it. This is generic; it's been on the market since the 1990s. So, like you said, it's underutilized, but so that's an option. So hormone therapy, and then the other shift, something called uh riloxabine. You know, we haven't forgotten about, you know, our class of medicines um that, you know, are our, our tissue selective estrogen complexes, which is uh one called estrogen plus basidoxine. The trade name was Duave, which might be something that comes back didn't no, no, it's coming back. Use.
0: I have had okay. it straight from the company. Um, it's being released in in Canada. We're taping this in, in January. We think that it will supposedly be available again in, um, by March is what I'm being told, March of 2023. And this is an oral estrogen that, as you mentioned, basodoxifen is also a cousin to roloxifen mm-hmm. and to tamoxifen. And not only does it protect against the breast, um, but it builds bone and it protects the uterine lining. So that's,
1: a really good medication. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's some really good studies in in the bone density improvements um, in those studies. Um, So yeah, so that, you know, that's another option. You know, I always uh, field questions about things like strontium, boron, and all these heavy metals and things like that. Um, The reality is, you know, these are not, you know, FDA approved, um, you know, tibolone, these are all medicines. You know, some of them are approved in Europe, but there's cardiovascular risks, there's uh, cancer risks, uh, these are some of them are heavy metals, um, you know, the deposit in bone. So really, those are not really the options. So, you know, really for osteopenia, we have the lifestyle, which we talked so much about, nutritional things, and then hormone therapy. Again, another clear winner. And you, you mentioned that, you know, women come to say they have hot flashes, et cetera. and then they come, you know, then we say, oh, it'll help your bones. But I'm, I see the other side when I see women for osteoporosis and bone health consults, they'll say oh, yeah, I also have hot flashes and I can't sleep and all these things. And I'm like, oh, or I have vaginal dryness and the vaginal inserts aren't helping me that much. And I always say, well, then, then, you know, then we can add some systemic estrogen and it's going to help your the vagina and it's going to help the hot flashes and it's going to help the bones, the reason you came to see me. So again, I and think it's it not going to increase circle. the risk of
0: breast cancer. It is not going to exactly. increase the risk of breast cancer, which again, I have a whole podcast on that. All right, let's move mm-hmm. on to the big guns. Someone has okay. been told you have osteoporosis, you are at risk for fracture Um Let's talk about medications. I know you could Mm -hmm. talk about these medications Mm -hmm. for hours, um, Mm -hmm. but let's break it down into Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, first line, second line, third line, Mm -hmm. so that women who are advised about these medications have just kind of an overview of Mm -hmm. choices.
1: Right. So I always like to say first, so how did the diagnosis of osteoporosis come about? You know, was it a bone density? Make sure that that was done accurately. That was done correctly. Um, was it a fracture? Um, was it a hip fracture, spine fracture, wrist fracture? Because, and that, and looking at the age, right? So all of these things, because just like, you know, any, any, any condition, we want to say, well, who, who are the people we need to really put it, really treat, you know, versus we need to say, okay, well, you know, think about, you know, standardizing you know our medicine so we really have to use a tier of how we you know uh, talk to patients so Women with the highest risk for fractures are defined as women who have had an osteoporosis-related fracture, which we've talked about, who are age over 70, again, because we've talked about all these things, bone density being lower, fall risk being higher, and a T-score based on a bone density of minus three or lower. So that cutoff of minus three, um, meaning that the bone density or the bone fragility is is much higher, Uh, sorry, the bone fragility is is very low, and, and we're concerned because the fracture risk is high, we need to think about using the medicines like that build our bones or medicines that are stronger um, to reduce our risk of a fracture. And so we have those are that class of medicines is called the osteoanabolic, not a steroid or bone building effect. And they stimulate more of the osteoblast. So as you can kind of see from my talking, those are medicines that are, you know, going to be not your oral alendronate or your oral phosmex. Those are going to be in, given by injections. Those are going to be given by infusions. The three medicines that we know that do that are um, a class of medicines called the parathyroid agonist, such as abaloparatide, Teraparitide, And then there's a, a newer agent that actually combines both bone building and to a lesser extent bone resorption. And that medicine is called Romosozumab. Those are all the uh, I mean, generic I, names.
0: I know that we try and use the scientific names, but just for reference, there are sure. a lot of women who are only told the trade names. So can you mention sure. the trade names of those? Sure.
1: So for the bone building agents that again, are going to stimulate more of the osteoblast and are going to be used for women who are at highest risk are, are ones called abaloparotide, which is uh, which is uh, the trade name is Timlos or Teraparotide. The trade name is Forteo or Romasosumab, and the trade name is Avenity. So again, all of those are either given by daily subcutaneous injection or Romasosumab is a monthly injection uh, for one year. So why we use those medicines? Well, we have good, really good literature to show that compared to some of the other Oral medicines like Fosamax, for for instance, which is really the sort of standard of care for so many years, that if you're at higher risk for fracture, you have a decreased risk of fracture and a better bone density over time. We're talking one, two, five years. If you use medicines such as bone builders versus, you know, generic oral medication. So for my women who are at the highest risk for fracture, they've had a fracture, they have a very low bone density, and that's really regardless of age. So even in women in their 50s or 60s, if they have very low bone density and they're at a high risk for fracture, you know, we're talking about hormones, but we're also talking to them about medicines that can actually boost or build their bone density. I use the analogy of those medicines as sort of like t- filling up your tank of in of gas, right? You're not if your tank of gas is very low, you're not just gonna you know put in a dollar or two and then hope it lasts you. You're gonna really try and fill up the tank and really build the bone. And we really do can do that with the medicines that we have today. Um, and then the other class of medicines, which we have a, a variety of, which are called the anti-resorptive class of medicines, um, that actually includes hormone therapy and includes the which we've just talked about, but also includes that very large mainstay of class of medicines called the bisphosphonate. So those are medicines that prevent the osteoclast or bone resorbing cells. That's Alendronate, which the brand name is Fosamax. That's Residronate, the brand name is Actinel a the bone the brand name is boniva um and then there is one infusion which is called a zoledrin- zoledronic acid or zolindronate, and the brand name of that is called reclass which is a once yearly infusion um and besides that I, I know it seems like a lot but we actually don't have that many treatments for osteoporosis we should have more um there's a medicine called uh, prolia or denosinab which is a um inhibits uh, what we call the rank ligand or receptor activated nuclear kappa which is a uh Osteoclast stimulator. So that medicine uh, prevents more bone breakdown and is given by a twice yearly subcutaneous painless injection. Um, and and that's pretty much our, our armamentarium. It's a pretty good
0: armamentarium. And, you know, I think if, if nothing else, what you can get from this is that you really need to be in the hands of an expert because it's not as if you just say, oh, everyone should take this or everyone should take that. And very often women will come to me after they've had a consult with you and because they've been my patient forever, they'll say, well, Dr. Sapri said this, what do you think? And I always answer whatever she thinks is what you should do because it is complicated and you have to really look at the total picture um and, and it is frustrating for women because it is very often difficult to find someone who is a true expert in all of this. Before we leave this yeah, topic, it's a
1: nuanced I, discussion. It's for a sure. nuanced I discussion. That, and
0: it's a long discussion. It's it's not a, it's yeah. not a, I mean, we've
1: been talking for a long time already. Um and you know, right. we're not so we have even, to look at right the side effects and you know, again, patients medical history and what they're what they can take. Insurance always dictates everything these days right. as well. Um, and, and from but the a practical point, is, is someone
0: going to be able to give themselves a subcutaneous injection absolutely. and want to come in to get the infusion? But the, the thing, and I hate to ask this question because it'll probably irritate you, but I'm gonna ask you because patients ask us all the time, could you please spend 30 seconds talking about osteonecrosis of the jaw?
1: Sure. Sure. So I always say this is like the Achilles heel of of treating osteoporosis. So um so osteonecrosis of the jaw is is not you know that your jaw hurts or your jaw is shrinking or you know anything like that it's actually a true medical condition so osteonecrosis the jaw is where um your the mandible or maxilla which is the area uh, you know or the chin bone etc um degrades uh due to or resorbs um, generally due to an infection, um, poor healing bone, and this was first described actually in cancer patients who were receiving high doses of uh, a bisphosphonate intravenously called pamidronate. So again, it was seen in very, you know, sick patients unfortunately getting this medicine to prevent bone metastases. And so it sort of now trickled down into this whole sort of class effect. But the reality is the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw is less than one in a 100,000. So when women say to me, oh, like, you know, I, I don't want to go on bisphosphonates for one to three years because I'm so concerned about this risk, the risk is much higher that you actually get, this has been shown in lots of publications now, the risk is much higher that you get hit, you know, that you get hit by lightning um, that you get osteonecrosis <laughs> of the jaw. So it's, it's so rare. That being said, you do need to keep up with routine dental care, which, you know, sometimes
0: see, the patients the on. I, I'm telling you the reason women ask about it, because otherwise, why would they hear about such a rare, 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 rare side effect? The reason is because and it happened to me, I went to my dentist and as part of their routine questioning, they right. say, are you taking a drug for osteoporosis? And the woman says, why do you ask? Well, because your jaw right. might fall apart, ma'am. And then right. she's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to take that. If they would stop asking, people would stop. Worrying about it. And they don't ask, right. it, are you worried about getting hit by lightning? But that, as you right. said, is, is no, important. it's
1: true. The dentists are. we sometimes say we have to treat the dentist. But the reality is, again, we talked about it, even this from the beginning. The reason is that the bone in the jaw is alveolar bone, so trabecular bone. So if we are if if you're taking the classes of medicines like the anti-resorptive medicines, like the, the bisphosphonates, the denosumab, the, those medicines, and they, for too long, they inhibit what we call the bone remodeling. And so there's a potential that if you cannot remodel or improve that bone density in the jaw, and again, the jaw, the teeth, we're always constantly chewing, we're always constantly, there's a low level of infection, we're eating, et cetera, that that bone might not heal and might become infected. Generally, osteonecrosis of the jaw happens with high doses of long-term bisphosphonates in people with poor dentition, poor-fitting dentures, um, extractions, implants, radiation to the jaw. So we ask about these things, and I see some of these you know patients. So sometimes we do do some you know timing of these medications. Have you Their ever seen studies. osteonecrosis of the jaw? I've seen it one time in a patient who had. Tongue cancer with radiation. I've never seen it
0: and I have treated literally thousands of menopausal women in my practice of which, you know, many, many, many of them obviously are also taking bisphosphonates. So, I mean, the reason I'm bringing this up and making such a point is because it's one of those things. It's like women who don't take hormone therapy because they think they're going to get breast cancer when in fact, estrogen decreases the risk of breast cancer. And we have women that are literally dying from hip fractures because they were worried about a complication from a medication, which essentially never happens in a low risk right. population. So it's the all other thing about-
1: with osteonecrosis of the jaw is 90% of it is treated with oral swish and swallows, meaning you gargle something and it's an antibacterial swish and swallow and you spit it out and it. And your osteonecrosis if there was even any you know there's stages of this just like in medicine everything stage one zero one two most of it is stage zero to one and can be improved with just swish and swallows and not with oral debridement and, and dramatic surgery and all these things so the reality is we treat more dentists and their concerns than we do women but again it's important keeping up with your routine dental care i we asked about these things i think every person that's treating osteoporosis now has to do that because the questions have to be answered. And and hopefully this is some, you know, some high quality education that people are getting here. (laughs) I would think
0: so. And just to circle back, I had earlier, earlier, earlier when we were talking about consequences of, of bone loss. And I mentioned that, you, that's one of the reasons that we have sagging in the face and bags under the eyes and because of the bone loss in the face. And I'm going to, I know the answer to this question because I've already asked you, but I'm going to ask again for everyone's uh, benefit. Is there one single study that looks on the impact of using these drugs to treat osteoporosis and facial wrinkles?
1: I, I, you know what? I don't know. No, I, I no, know. there isn't. You know, you, I don't know. There's not. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. No, but I'm thinking, but, I mean, okay, you know, let's,
0: I'm always looking for incentives for women to, to yeah. treat medical problems. And I'm just thinking right. just maybe, you know, I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. If it's going to build bone throughout your body, it's also going to build facial bone and that would be an facial interesting structure. study for someone to do. So we'll put that on our list of studies that okay. that need to be done. This has been great. We've covered so much. I think anyone who has taken the time to listen to this whole thing really has a clear understanding of not only why it's important to have good bone health, but how to keep your bones at their peak health. And then if you do have bone loss, what you can do about it so that you don't have a fracture or a repeat fracture. So thank you so much. I'm going to put a lot of these links. A lot of this information is going to be in the program notes because we covered so many things and I want to be sure that women have access to these lists that we talked about for exercises and calcium supplementation and all of that will be there. Um, I will also in the program notes, be sure and put all the information about you so that people know where to find you and get more information about what you're doing and the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for boning up with us
1: on, Mm -hmm. on bone health. Thank you, Lauren. This was so much fun. Love sharing the passion together.
0: I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on amazon.com and follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Sometimes I feel blue She helped me see